We're going to look at one verse in Luke 23. If you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to find Luke 23, verse 34. We'll get there in just a moment. Do you ever feel misunderstood? Have you ever wondered if anybody knows what you're going through? I'm beginning a new series of messages on the final words of Jesus. And these words from the cross help us understand that he, Jesus, he gets us. He does understand. He does see us even at the points of deepest need. He not only knows and he understands, but he's felt what we feel. So, you've been abused? He gets you. You feel alone? Jesus gets you. You've been neglected? He gets you. You feel needy? Jesus gets you. Are you walking through sorrow? He gets you. Have you been tripped up as you've succumbed to sin? He gets you. These passages we're going to look at have been called the last words of Jesus. We know that's not really accurate because though Jesus does die, praise the Lord, he rises again. Jesus raises himself from the dead. He spends 40 days with his disciples, those he loved. And then he ascends into heaven after giving us his true last words, our marching orders to make disciples of others, to see others become his followers. But we do think of these some as their last words. And last words can be revealing. Warren Wiersbe says they're like an x-ray that can reveal the heart and the mind of a person. For example, John F. Kennedy's last words on that fateful sunny day in November in 1963 were, My God, I've been hit. Beethoven, the famous composer, said, Friends, applaud. The comedy's over. Henry Ward Beecher, the famous preacher, he said, now comes the mystery. William Palmer, a murderer who was nicknamed the Prince of Poisoners, he was about to be executed by hanging. And as he stepped out onto that trap door of the gallows where they were going to put a noose around his neck and end his life, he asked, are you sure it's safe? <laughs> and Samuel Goldwyn, the famous movie mogul, as he lay on his deathbed, said, I never thought I'd live to see this day. As we look at the words of Jesus, we see the core of his existence. We see what the cross meant to him. But as we think about the cross, you're also going to see what it should mean to us. Have you thought about the cross? We see all the attributes of God on display on the cross. But we see all the neediness of man, of us, on the cross. We see our sin. We see our shortcoming. We see our failure. We see our brokenness. 
In fact, it's on the cross that we find the answer of one of life's biggest questions. Well, where was God when... Where was God when my loved one died? Where was God when my marriage fell apart? Where was God when I was being abused? Where was God when I lost my job? We see exactly where God was and we see what he was doing. We see what that means to us. And the answer is clear. He was there. He was with us, but yes, he was also on the cross, suffering with you, agonizing for you, speaking to you, into your life, helping you see that he gets you. He, he reminds us that his wounds were not bandaged so that our brokenness could be healed. His needs were not met so that our thirst, our wants, might be quenched. His sorrow was so great so that our grief could be taken away. Our God has wounds and that should change us. In fact, that must change us. Because it's at the cross, it's at the cross where we first see the light. It's at the cross where the burden of our hearts roll away. It's there by faith we receive our sight. And that's what gives us the ability to be happy all the day. In an African village, one of the huts was burning down. All of the family members except one died in that fire. Because at the last minute, a stranger from the village rushed in and took out the small child. Because they were superstitious, the next morning, the village leaders began to meet and they thought this child must be special because his life was spared when everyone else was lost. And so a wise man in the village staked claim to the child. And then a wealthy man in the village staked claim to the child. But then a stranger walked in. And when his hands were outstretched, you could see the burn marks. He had been the one to go in and rescue the child. And as the rescuer, he said, no, I'll take care of this one. Friends, I want you to understand whatever you're facing, he gets you. He, he understands however deep you're hurt. He is your rescuer. What you're going to see that Jesus endured on the cross, he endured so that he might stake claim to you. So that you understand there's nothing in your life that has to keep you down. There's nothing you can go through that has to keep you from him. There's no moment you were ever separated from his love. In fact, there's, there's just one point to this message, and I'm going to drill it in as much as I can. And that point is this. Jesus knows what it's like to feel hurt. He gets your pain. I hope you recognize that. Jesus suffered physically. There were nails driven into his hand. His feet were nailed to the cross. A crown of thorns was placed on his head and pushed down so much that blood began to fill his eyes. In that moment, 
it hurt him even to breathe. He had been beaten. He would be stabbed. Jesus hurt physically for you. But he also hurt emotionally. They stripped him. Naked on the cross. Since the Garden of Eden, it had been clear that nakedness was not something we really should be that comfortable with. They spat upon him. They called him names. He hurt emotionally for you. But Jesus also hurt spiritually. As you'll see, he he says, God, where are you? He felt alone. He was separated from God because he took on your sin and your sin. He took on your sin and my sin. He hurt spiritually for us. Harvey Branscombe summarizes the crucifixion with these words. Few more terrible means of execution could be devised. Pain and thirst, the torture of insects, exposure to brutal spectators, the horror, rigid fixation, all continuing interminably combined to make it a supreme humiliation and torture. Jesus knows what it's like to feel hurt. He gets your pain. The crucifixion of Jesus was cruel, it was humiliating, it was unjust, and yet it's in that moment, it's in that setting that he forgave. Chuck Swindoll says that in spite of the enormous discomfort and the indescribable pain, Jesus spoke words of genuine forgiveness from the cross. And those are the first words that we hear. Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then fulfilling a prophecy from the Psalms, Dr. Luke records that they cast lots to divide his garments. We're going to focus on those red letter words, the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a revealing statement, isn't it? It reveals the nature of God and it reveals the need of man, us, our greatest need, meeting our greatest problem. What's our greatest problem? Sin. What's our greatest need? Forgiveness. So let's break that word down. And. This verse starts with a conjunction. And. Reminding us that what Jesus said is connected with the past. And and we know that recent past, right? Jesus and his disciples, after praying in the garden, were met there by Judas, the betrayer, one of his closest friends. One of the twelve. Have you ever been stabbed in the back? Have you ever had someone that you felt like you invested in? That you poured your life into? 
walk away and hurt you as they left? Judas turned him over to not only the Roman guards, but the religious leaders who would ask for his death. He would end up before Herod and then Pilate. And these governmental leaders, these elected leaders, they would find nothing wrong with him. In fact, Pilate would come to the point where he looks and sees another criminal, one with many charges against him. His name is Barabbas. Say Barabbas. And that's what the crowd shouted that day. They said, no, give us Barabbas. We would rather have the criminal with us than Jesus. And so Pilate washed his hands and turned him over. The Sadducees, the religious leaders, they were there just grinning ear to ear. They got exactly what they wanted. So then the Roman guards, the soldiers, they began to do their work. They beat him. They whipped him. They spat upon him. They made fun of him. And then they took him. And they nailed him to the cross. His hands and his feet. Jesus had walked through the streets. You can walk that path today with that cross beam on his shoulders until it got so heavy that a man named Siren, this Simon the Cyrene, he came alongside him and he helped him. But, but when they got there, they nailed Jesus to the cross and they jabbed it into the ground and it had to puncture his lungs and cause him to find difficulty breathing. This was common. The Romans would kill about 30,000 people a year on a cross. It could take up to nine days for them to die. It's in that context that Jesus begins to speak. And what did he say? He prayed. The first words of Jesus from the cross, they were a prayer. That should say something to us. Prayer must become our first response, not our last resort. Prayer must be a habit, a spiritual discipline that we develop in our life, as the Apostle Paul says, so that we pray without ceasing. What, what if God only gave you in your life those things that you had earnestly asked for in prayer? What if your only blessings were those things that you had sought out from God through prayer? What if the only life change around you in your family, in your community, in your career, in your schooling, in any aspect of your life only came as a result of prayer? Jesus prayed and he, he prayed continually it says, and Jesus said, that word said is the imperfect tense, which literally means again and again. So just imagine as they were nailing his hands, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. As they were nailing his feet, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. As they jabbed that cross into the ground, Jesus prayed, 
as they jeered at him, as the disciples had left him, Jesus prayed. As he breathed his last breaths, Jesus prayed. When you experience hurt, the first thing you should do is pray. It's an issue of focus. Stop focusing on the hurt and start focusing on the Father, which is the next word I want you to see. It was a personal word. He was praying to his Father, and we understand that because we believe in what we call the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But the Bible teaches that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. Did you know that? Do you understand that? When, when you step across that faith line, you're adopted into God's family. And just as clearly as that day when we sat in a Hillsborough County courtroom and I looked at a judge and I answered the tough questions and I, I said that we would take this young girl into our home and that she would bear my name and be a part of my family and that became a legal transaction. In the same way, if you follow Christ, you become a part of God's family. You become a child of God. <laughs> Romans eight fifteen puts it this way, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons, you could say as daughters, by which we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit, we are children of God. Now, you may in this world not have known an earthly father that represented God well. I was blessed. I did. But let me just tell you something that means regardless of your experience. That means with God as your father, you have one who loves you unconditionally. You have one who loves you in an unchanging way. And you have one whose love is unending I want you to understand this today. If you have become a follower of Jesus Christ, you were adopted into the family of God. God loves you no matter what you've done, no matter what your experiences have been in life. God loves you and He cares about you as your Father. This is so important. Because you're going to focus on him, not those hurts. You're going to focus on him, not those that have done you wrong. You're going to focus on him, not the pain. But it was also a pardoning word. Because the meat of the statement is clear. Father, forgive them. You can't begin to understand the Christ life without understanding forgiveness. That's who we are. That's what is supposed to separate us. It's that that distinguishes us from the world. Not these religious gatherings. Not even these disciplines or habits that we have. It's this ability to practice that which God has done for us. 
to forgive. Even when it may seem unforgivable. Forgiveness. It sounds good. It sounds great. Until you have to do it. This is not new for Jesus, right? He's preaching that famous message where kind of the groupies come around. Not his disciples, but the groupies. I mean, 5,000 or more are gathered, maybe 20,000 on a hillside. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus is talking, and, and they ask him to teach him how to pray, and, and so he does. And, and we remember what he says in that prayer, right? He, he begins again saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Cause your name to be sacred. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life today, just as it is in heaven. Give us this day, give me today what I need, my daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus ends that prayer, and then he realizes, I don't think they got it. And so he drives home that point again, and he says, let me just say something to you. If, if you don't learn to forgive, you will not be forgiven. I grew up in church, and I've, I've been around church all my life, and for the last 30 years, this has been my vocation. It's been the primary focus of my life. And there's a lot of problems in church. I mean, gossip's a problem in church. And, uh, you know, uh, division can be a problem in church. And there's all kind of habits and addictions that come into people's lives that spring up and become a problem in church. And good grief, a failure to be generous is a problem in church. But if you were to ask me, what, what's the number one problem in church? I don't even have to think. It's unforgiveness. It's that those who profess to follow Christ don't forgive as he forgave. And if we really believe the words of Jesus, then if that's the case, our eternal security may be in jeopardy. Because according to Jesus, you, you don't have this Christian existence if you have not become a forgiver. Jesus modeled it in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he reminded Peter of this, right? Peter, who, who was in the habit of sticking his foot into his mouth, was trying to just figure out exactly what's the minimum I have to do. Do, do any of you ever live that way? I sometimes struggled. In, in classes throughout a long educational process, I, I sometimes would act that way. What do I have to do? It's kind of like, what's passing? I mean, can I just pass Peter said, how, how many times do you have to forgive Jesus? Seven? That's a, that's a holy number. Do I have to forgive seven times? And Jesus tells a story to drive his point home, but ultimately he says what? Nah, you, you forgive however many times it takes, Peter. You, you forgive like I'm forgiving you again and again and again. Now, in Jesus' ministry, he had repeatedly forgiven sins. In fact, that's what caused a lot of the Jews to be angry with him. Because he would say after he healed someone, go, your sins are forgiven. And they would say, who do you think you are, God? And Jesus would just smile. 
Maybe wink. But here, on the cross, where he's embodying humanity and taking our punishment, he doesn't forgive. He asks the Father to forgive. And sometimes as we're navigating our hurt and the pain that we've been through, we recognize this is going to take supernatural intervention. So just think about that. When mankind was at its worst, God was at his best. When we were doing the worst thing we could possibly do, we were murdering God. He was showing mercy. That's who he is. Justice meeting mercy. I know what some of you are saying. That sounds good, Pastor, but you don't know how fresh this is. You're, you're right, I don't. He does. He gets you. You don't know what it's like to experience the hurt I've experienced. And you're right, I don't. But he does. He gets you. And some of you are thinking, man, if I can just get some healing, if I get a little further down the road, I, I need some time. When time passes, you know the, the saying, Pastor, you time, time heals a lot of wounds. When, when time passes, then I'll forgive. I would just remind you that it was Jesus on the cross with his wounds open who said, Father, forgive them. And who was them? Could have been Judas. Because he certainly blew it big. Maybe it was those elected officials. <laughs> Maybe it was Herod and Pilate. Or the Jewish leaders, the religious people. Those that somewhere along the way, they had started down the right path, but something had gone awry. They knew a Messiah was coming, but they were blinded to see Jesus. Maybe it was them. Maybe it was the soldiers. The one with the hammer in his hands. Maybe it's the one whose spit was running down Jesus' chest. Perhaps it was the one whose fingerprints were on the crown of thorns. Or maybe it was the disciples. Where were they? Not with Jesus, not at the cross. John would come back and we'll hear what Jesus says to him, but the rest of them, who knows? They were fishing or went to the 7-Eleven. I don't know. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Maybe he was doing as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he prayed? He, he prayed for his disciples. And then he prayed for you and me. He, he prayed for us. He, he, he prayed for those that would come after them. That's us. Maybe he was saying for us, 
Father, for those that will be church members and church leaders and church attenders. But they get caught up in these sinful practices. And they hold on to these hurts. Father, forgive them. It was also a promised word. Jesus was doing something that would have to be done. We know this because in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, we have this passage where Jesus is pictured as the suffering servant. And in that passage in Isaiah, this is what it says. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So many, many years before Jesus would be on the cross, we would hear that on the cross, he would pray for those that were crucifying him. And that's significant because it's just a reminder as I go through these hurts that the one who gets me, the one who knows, is faithful to keep his word. He's a promise-keeping God. That's who he is. He's the original promise-keeper. He's faithful and he's true. But it's not just that. It's a powerful word. Jesus' prayer on the cross, it had impact. It came true. God's forgiveness was granted, even to some of those who were there. How do we know? Because after Jesus died, he was buried. He was buried for three days, and then, praise the Lord, he rose again. Jesus is alive. Jesus rose again, and he spent the next 40 days pouring into those disciples. About 120 of them had gathered in Jerusalem, and they would hold worship services, and they would eat together, and they would study God's word together. But then Jesus ascended into heaven after giving them his marching orders. But when he ascended into heaven, they gathered, and they did what we've done today. They opened the scriptures, and they read. They worshiped the Lord together. They prayed. And you know what happened? The Holy Spirit of God began to fall upon them. And Peter, the man who had put his foot in his mouth, all of a sudden had a golden tongue. And he stood up and he began to preach. And on that day, 3,000 people began a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the next day, he preached again. And a couple thousand more followed Jesus. And in Acts 3, in Acts 3, when Peter was preaching, he says to the crowd, And now, brothers, I know, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Some of you, you've come to this place and whether it be a sinful practice or whether it be hurt that you're holding on to, it's the ignorance that has gripped you. But ignorance is not innocence, is it? Sin must still be forgiven. It must be dealt with. And God deals with our sin. Well, remember the one point I've told you the story, but the one point was straightforward. Jesus knows what it's like to feel hurt. He gets your pain. Do you understand that? There's nothing that you can experience that he doesn't understand. He's encountered pain as well. So what do you do? 
According to Jesus, the pathway to peace always involves forgiveness. And some of you today, as you're navigating the hurts of life that are very, very real, and the wounds that may go very deep, you've got to begin to contemplate, where does the forgiveness demonstrated by Jesus on the cross, where does it apply in my life? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've received it. Paul tells us about that equation in in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for by grace are you saved by grace through your faith. It's the gift of God. It's not of your works. Lest any of us should boast that we would be proud. You've experienced what it's like to have that forgiveness. And so now he wants you to live in a way of forgiveness. That's why Paul would go on to say in that same letter to Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Henry Nouwen says, forgiveness is the well at the center of God's village. Get that picture in your mind. You're a part of the family of God, Christ followers. So you're living in God's village. And that well is where we go to, to have our thirst quenched, to be nourished. You go to Jesus for forgiveness. So I want you to think about the cross. What Jesus did for you on Calvary. And I want you to ask what forgiveness needs to be accomplished in your life. Charles Spurgeon said, let us go to Calvary to learn how to be forgiven. And then let us linger there to learn how to forgive. Simple message. I want to give you four practical ways to respond. A pastor by the name of Robert Nash, I think, summarizes these well. So I'm going to use his model. Number one, he says, see your need. See your need. What sins in your life need to be confessed? Where is forgiveness needed in you? Where is forgiveness needed from you? Do you see the need for forgiveness in your life? Number two, see Jesus. One of the things this kind of message does is it kind of stirs up the hurts in our life. Because I've reminded you of some of those pains. I've reminded you perhaps of abuse or maybe the addiction you struggled with, this sin battle or or the way you've been wronged and sinned against. And when all of that is stirred up, what you've got to do is look back to the cross and you've got to see Jesus. He is the answer. You understand that, right? Whatever you're facing, Jesus is the answer. Whatever your need, he is the answer. However broken and hurt and in pain you are, he is the answer. See Jesus for who he is. See your need, see Jesus, and then go to him, go to God. When it comes to the area of forgiveness, this is confession. Confess is a word that literally means to agree with. We're agreeing with God about our need for him. We've seen the need. We've seen what Jesus does to meet our need. And then we're going to God. 
And let me tell you two ways we do that. One is when we become a follower of Christ. And the reality is, like every group to whom I speak, you're divided into two categories. It's probably not right down the middle, but there are two categories of you. One group of you, you've got that relationship with Christ. There's been that time where you stepped across the faith line. If you were to die today, you know that you're going to spend forever in heaven. That's not any question, any doubt in your mind. And for you, what this means is that you go to God and you stay regularly confessed up about your sins, or you go to God and you ask Him to help you forgive where you need to forgive. But remember, there's two groups. There has to be a number of you that have never begun a relationship with Christ. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you like everyone else on the planet. You were born a sinner, separated from God. That's what the Bible says. We're all sinners, every one of us. That means we all have that same need of forgiveness. And until that need is met once and for all through your trust in Jesus Christ, you have no hope but to deal with your hurt on your own. So for you today, what you need to do is go to God for salvation, we call it. You go to God and ask for that forgiveness for that first time. You recognize that you're a sinner. You believe that what Jesus endured on the cross was for the pain of your sin. And then you trust that that was enough. And you go to God. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a moment. But there's a lot of us here that need to do this last thing. You need to go to others. Some of you need to go to someone and ask forgiveness. You've wronged them. You've hurt them. You've said things about them. You've done things to them. You've assumed the worst rather than assumed the best. And you need to go to them. Uh, Others of you need to go to someone and, and seek reconciliation. I read this morning in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. And because of that, God calls us his ambassadors. We've watched the news this week as we see ambassadors from Eastern Europe that have been dislodged. They no longer can represent our nation in another nation. But you're here. And you're his ambassadors. And your job is to represent Jesus well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your job is to represent Jesus well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your job as an ambassador is to represent Jesus well. You are ambassadors of Christ and he's given you this ministry of reconciliation. So who do you need to go to? Who do you need to go see or call or text? To be like Jesus. These first few words are packed with power. But they make a clear statement. Where was Jesus when you went through your hurt? He was on the cross 
making a way out of that hurt for you. So, so the question isn't really where was God when you were hurt. The question is where are you in light of the cross? Maybe you remember the words of that old hymn whose melody is equally striking. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? When he was on the cross, you were on his mind. When you were being hurt, he was there. The question is, where are you today in light of the cross? Let's bow our heads together. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I've already given you your responses to this message. If you are a follower of Christ, there's some very practical things you may need to do. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of reflection and contemplation as we always do. There'll be pastors from this church that are standing here prepared to receive you, to pray with you if you have needs. Maybe you're dealing with the hurt, you're dealing with pain, you're dealing with something that's keeping you from zeroing in and resting in who Jesus is. I'm going to invite you to come and to maybe take one of the pastor's hands. If you're a lady, we're happy to find a godly lady just to pray with you if you would prefer that. We want you to know that Jesus gets you. He understands what you're walking through. And he is with you. But please hear this. There's no question in my mind that there are some right here in this room. There are others watching online. And you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about your religion. Maybe you've got Baptist by your name or Catholic by your name or Methodist by your name or Episcopal by your name or Lutheran by your name, or Assembly of God. You get the point, Presbyterian, non-denomination. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about ritual. Maybe you've been to church class and First Communion and Confirmation, and if you're Baptist, you've walked down an aisle, and you've been dipped or dunked, and maybe you've been to a new member gathering. But in your hearts, you know you've never looked at Jesus on the cross and trusted him to forgive you once and for all. You've never placed control of your life into his outstretched arms. 
If that's you, you may be a teenager and you've heard the gospel all week long, a disciple now, and yet you've realized you've not responded to it. You've not done anything with what God is saying in your life. You've never truly begun a relationship with Christ. Maybe you're a parent. You may even be a leader in this church, and that's you. You've gone through the motions. You're trying, but you're doing it on your own. You've not surrendered control to Jesus. Why not let today be the day of your salvation? Why not look to the cross and all that Jesus did and all that he stands for and allow him to be your Savior and Lord today? All you got to do is tell him you're ready. Maybe you'd pray this prayer right where you're seated. Just you and God. Maybe you'd say this. Jesus. Call his name. Say, Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. You're just acknowledging what he knows, what's true of every person who's ever lived. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. That's the greatest need of any sinner. I need forgiveness. I believe you died for me. I'm one of the them. You died for me, Jesus. And I believe you forgave me. God, you forgave me. So I receive that forgiveness. Tell him, I receive it, Lord. I receive your forgiveness. And I'm ready to follow you. I've tried being in control. But now I'm ready for you to be in control. Change me, Lord. Ask him to save you. Say, save me, Lord. heads are still bowed, our eyes are still closed but I want to walk you through a way of next step if you just prayed that prayer with me here in this room I want you to let me know, you can let us know if you're watching online too, just put it in your comments, but if you prayed that and you're here in this room with our heads bowed and our eyes closed right now, just slip your hand up right where you are just slip your hand up, you're saying I prayed that prayer right now, today if you did that, that's the most important thing that you could ever do. And if you did that, I want to be among the first to welcome you to God's family. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And then as soon as I say amen, we're going to begin to sing. This song is called Come to the Altar. And so that's what I'm going to invite you to do. Maybe you're here and this has just stirred up a bunch of junk and you just need to come and kneel here and treat the front of this stage like an altar, like a prayer altar. And you just need to kneel and pray and ask God. Maybe you need to take the hand of one of our pastors. And like I said, if you're a lady and you want a lady to pray with you, just ask them and we'll help find a lady. And godly ladies in the room, please make yourself available for this moment. If you just began that relationship with God by praying to receive Christ through that prayer of salvation, I want you to come and take one of these pastors' hand and say, I just prayed to receive Christ. I asked Jesus to save me. However you want to say it, I want you to respond to what God's doing. God has met us here. He's answered our prayers. Let's now respond. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we believe you've spoken to us. Thank you, Lord. And now we believe we have the opportunity to respond. Give us courage, Lord. I pray particularly for these students. Some of them have dealt with big things this weekend. Give them courage even right now to respond. I pray for parents and grandparents in the room, Lord. Give them the opportunity to respond. For single adults that are struggling, Lord, they've felt hurt. They've 
been through pain. Lord, for those that have experienced marital disaster, Lord, and all kinds of hurt in their life, they're grieving, they've gone through all kinds of difficulty, and for the first time, they've begun to understand that you get us. Lord, give them courage to just trust you, to come to the altar, to respond. Lord, I thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.